0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the NSAC Coffee Hour interview series. In this interview series, we hope to learn from a broad range of people closely associated with STEM, PhD, life. Professors, scientists, alumni, staff, administrators, and others. The goal is to get to know the fascinating journeys, stories, and experiences that got these people where they are today. Today, we're gonna interview our dear professor, Steven Worley. He is an Emmy professor in Purdue University. Next, let's welcome KZ, the student of uh, Professor Worley to introduce his dear professor. Welcome. So good afternoon, everyone. Looks like it's perfect time. It's cool weather outside. It looks like a storm is brewing. Nice time to sipping for sipping coffee and getting to know our Professor Worley. So today's guest is a man who's known for his contributions to the world of microfluidics and micro PIV. He's a husband, he's a father, he's an engineer. He loves biking, he runs marathons, he plays volleyball and soccer. He's the author of over 250 250 research articles and books. He's an entrepreneur of two companies and he makes amazing Christmas cookies. So for those who don't know him personally, he's that tall guy who you have seen around Burke. Always with biking air and a gigantic mug of tea in his hand.
1: <laughs> right. Well, a long time ago, uh, when I had my first uh, daughter, uh, the, um, the the doctor told my wife, "Yeah, better quit, better quit drinking coffee." And I was a big coffee drinker at the time, so. <sighs> And that's like that's 17 years ago. So I've been drinking tea ever since.
0: Oh, uh, I see That's
1: why you're a lovely father.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. You just gave up your daughter's age.
1: Yeah, a <laughs> 17-year-old doesn't mind that. Uh, if you're older, though, then they then they mind it.
0: Well, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so yeah, what tell us the story about uh, behind this photo, Professor Worley.
1: Oh yeah, yeah that was that that was. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of this. Uh, so there's a zero-G airplane that's flown by NASA and they call it the Vomit Comet. It used to be, uh, Comet used to be the model of the airplane. Uh, and so they call it the Vomit Comet, although they were, this one was a 727. Uh, and during grad school, one of my professors uh, at Northwestern, Seth Lichter, he told me about this zero-G uh, plane and, you know, the cool fluid mechanics experiments you could do in zero G. And I thought, I gotta do that. And so 10 years later, I finally had uh, an excuse to do it. That pile of instrumentation that you see uh, on the floor is a, actually is a a device that we made at Burke. I know none of that is microfluidics, right? That's all hardware and, uh, you know, sampling uh, signal equipment. But somewhere in there is a, uh, a tiny chip that has uh, a small hole uh, drilled in it, you know, uh, etched in it, something like 10 microns. And then there's a fern spore stuck in there. And then there's a couple of electrodes fabricated on the surface. And I think this was just after Burke opened. We built this at Berk and uh, um, pretty simple fab process. Uh, but it was the idea was to test Uh, how a fern spore, which is a single cellular seed essentially, to test how that fern spore knows which way is up. And so if it germinates in a particular direction, let's say in zero G, then that might indicate and maybe it's the magnetic field or something, or light and it's not actually gravity. So the results were pretty inconclusive, but we did get to fly on the plane.
0: And did you live up to the name? Ah,
1: uh, no. They they so NASA, being a government agency, has all sorts of um, exceptions to the normal rules, and they were allowed to prescribe uh, lots of good drugs that uh, that you know you you normally couldn't get prescribed. So they give you this cocktail of. Is it? Scopolamine. So scopolamine is a depressant and it depresses your, uh, your your inner ear, right? So it stops you from getting motion sick. But since it's a depressant, it also makes you go to sleep. So then they give you some amphetamines as well. <laughs> and uh, what I got, uh, so in my case, at least, it took longer for the amphetamines to wear off than the uh, depressant. So when I got off the flight, I was I was totally high. <laughs> uh, it was was kind of fun
0: legally yeah. legally hard. <laughs> uh,
1: so you fly 40 you fly 40 of those uh parabolas in a in a in a sortie in a particular uh, mission and uh you know if you turn your head while you were pulling out so you you know you have a period of 0g and then you have a period of 2g. And if you turn your head too much during the two G part, right, it sort of doubles the, uh, the, the 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 rate at which you get motion sick. So uh, I did have to, you know, I, I I was on the edge a couple times. i to so, be careful.
0: Yeah, it sounds fun with all the cocktail that you got to drink. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get to know Professor Worley a little more, our tea-loving, gravity-defying professor. (laughs) So tell us a little about your journey as a teacher, Professor. How long have you been teaching?
1: Well, I think like most of us, I started in graduate school um, in uh, actually a very similar experience to yours, Casey. So uh, fluid mechanics lab, Uh, and I was a total disaster the first semester. (laughs) Uh, And like, for instance, I had to uh, instruct the students how to integrate under a curve, the area under a curve. And I I don't know if this reflects poorly on me or on (laughs) on Northwestern students, but they gave me the answers in square centimeters. So they actually drew some chart and then they integrated the area under it in physical units, not like, I don't know, flow or something, but in actual, what's the, <laughs> the actual area of this thing. So um, okay. <laughs> so let's say yeah, inauspicious beginnings. But after that, you know, then I started to uh, to try to figure it out. And this was early on in my grad school career. So you know, after that, I had a few more TA jobs. Um, started getting it figured out, and I you know found out that it's. Rewarding, uh, you know, helping somebody learn something is a rewarding endeavor. So.
0: Uh, yeah, okay. I would agree. That's that. That, like you said, uh, in my tea experience, that has been the one of the best parts.
1: Yeah. So, so, what about your
0: teaching experience in at Purdue? How long have you been teaching here?
1: Well, I've been here since '99, August of '99, so uh, just uh, 21 years.
0: 21 years. That's uh, uh, really long yeah that's a good so what motivated to take up this profession
1: well yeah it's it's you know i I wish i had a better story uh than i do because (laughs) i went to grad school i so i graduated with my bs in uh 1990 and it was a terrible job market and i thought
0: okay well,
1: we'll get a master's degree and see what happens and uh you know, maybe in two years, the job market will be better. So I go to grad school and get the masters. I had a great project at Northwestern and that sort of spun into a PhD project. And so I thought, all right, I'll do the PhD. And, you know, I, I think grad school was the the best time, uh, best job I ever had was a grad student. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I had a really exciting project and learned all kinds of stuff. And I thought, all right, yeah, I can do this for a living. Did a postdoc, and then I went, then I came here, and I found out that, you know, the job of a professor is completely uh, orthogonal to uh, that of a grad student. So you spend most oh. of your time writing and uh,
0: oh yeah,
1: yeah, um, editing other people's things like your papers, Casey. <laughs> um,
0: so yes please keep doing that
1: there's enough of the good parts left uh, it, it, I, I would still say it's the best job that i've ever had uh, being a, uh, a professor you know, okay. every, every semester there's a whole bunch of new students coming around who are all excited to do new things and um, yeah it's a great job
0: uh, so do you, do you have any idle idols in your mind, like some big scientists who you find really motivating? Hmm.
1: I don't know. I mean. I would say, again. Okay, you, you, you might you might guess this, but uh, I would say G.I. Taylor so. <laughs> and Joy, Actually, Joy's on the line. Uh, Joy has been in class with me a couple of times and has seen a, a, an infinite succession of G.I. Taylor videos. So for those of you who don't know, G.I. Taylor. Um, Jeffrey Ingram Taylor, he was um, a UK uh, uh, engineer. And he was, let's say, started his career just before World War I. And then, uh, I don't know, it went up to the 70s, probably. Uh, and doing, he just did all kinds of stuff, like all over the place. So he was a weatherman in World War One. And those planes that they had in World War One, right? They'd fly at a thousand feet, right in the middle of all the weather. So they really had to know the weather. And um, so he was a weatherman. I remember reading one of his papers from uh, just after World War One, in which he was testing anchors. So, you know, like what what anchor shape would you would work best on a boat to keep it from drifting? And you know, lots of stuff like that. He did work with hot air balloons and. Uh, Anyhow, eventually ended up doing, I would say more or less modern fluid mechanics um, and some of the work that, some of my graduate student research ended up in, in an area that he worked in. So almost every time you hear Taylor, it's that Taylor, GI Taylor, except for the Taylor series. That's a different Taylor, I don't remember who that is. But Taylor has a hundred different things named after him you know, vortices, numbers.
0: Yeah. And I believe now that you say it, that it it reflects in your research and in your, I would say, career as well, because being in your lab, I know that how many different kind of kinds of projects we go through, from literally working on neuron cells, on HIV yeah. cancer, on uh, other, you know, blood bond or waterborne diseases, to even working on beetles, the tiny okay. little bugs. So yeah, we have got a very great, vast variety of exposure. So I guess that reflects on your career as well.
1: Yeah, I, I, I like the, uh, my, in, my impression or my interpretation of a faculty position is it's a license to do interesting research. You know, nobody tells a professor what he or she has to do. Right? You, you have to, in fact, maybe for that, some people that's a hard thing, right? You have to find your, the right direction. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like you said, like I did the fern spore experiment. That was 2007, I think. Uh, you know, and then lots of other, you know, things like um, one of my students in 2010, he did a lot of fab stuff at, uh, at Burke. Um, he was building a chamber that you could stick into an SEM that you, in which you could encapsulate a small amount of liquid. And so you could do SEM measurements in what they call it an environmental chamber so you know all kinds of different topics it's, it's it's a great job i love it
0: so we talked about the great part what's the toughest part of this job or the part that you don't like as much as the great part
1: yeah well there's a whole lot of administration let's put it that way uh you know like There's a lot of important work that has to be done, and a lot of it has to be done by professors. Um, You know, like for instance, evaluating your colleagues. Uh, Are they doing a good job or not? And that's how you know. That's how you determine if an under or if a uh, assistant professor gets promoted. You know, the older professors evaluate that person's uh, work, and it's important. It has to be done, but. It does involve lots of uh, long meetings, sitting in uh, darkened rooms. uh, (laughs) Not the funnest part.
0: Okay. So is there one thing that you would like to tell a 20 year younger Steve to do differently? Basically, right before you were starting this job?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there must be. Uh, I think I've successfully avoided many of the pitfalls. Uh, you know, there. I guess there've been a few things like: uh, be careful who you partner with. Uh, make sure that they are. Um, um, I don't know, honorable. Make sure they, they have principles. Uh, you know, and there've been a few cases where I've uh, collaborated with people who were. Uh, Um, let's say, not the best partners. Let's put it that way. Let's be generous and put it that way. Um, Yeah,
0: quite diplomatic.
1: Yeah, so I don't know. You know, I'm really happy with with where I am and uh, how I got here. Um, So, yeah, I don't know that I would say... I would just say be a little more concerned, be a little more wary who you work with more questions
0: okay. who you work with, so. OK, OK, so if not a teacher or an, or even an engineer, what would you be? But in your childhood, in your school, you know, school life, did you indulge in art, music? No, <laughs>
1: <So> <laughs> I think I think like you, based on our conversations we've had in the past, I was always an engineer, uh, okay. Whether, okay. whether by profession or not. <laughs> uh, you know, taking things apart, uh, building different, you know, systems to do things around the house. You know, so unfortunately, and, and this is maybe a boring story, but no. uh, since high school, I had my eye set on uh, mechanical engineer, and the, the, the only change in direction was, let's say, a fine correction from Somebody who would be, uh, let's say, an industrial engineer, or you know, an an engineer in industry, versus you know, I ended up in academics. So, yeah. if I weren't doing this faculty job, I would probably be, uh, you know, working at some place like Hewlett-Packard or, you know, IBM, someplace that has a, um, a, a, you know, a good research department. GE maybe something like that. Because I do, I know the research is the funnest part, in my opinion. Uh, You know, when I sit down and talk to you and you're telling me about experiments that you've done, I'm like, okay, that's really cool. You know, let's try this, let's try that. And unfortunately, I don't get to do the actual trying uh, very
0: much. Well, you're most welcome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, (laughs) I would would like to do more of that.
0: Help me fix that microscope.
1: (laughs) Right, we should do that.
0: <laughs> sure, that would be lovely. Uh, okay, so this is this next round, which I call "Getting to Know Dr. Worley," the rapid fire round. Okay. Professor Worley, you have to answer as fast as quickly as possible. Okay. Okay. Whatever comes to your mind, the first. Okay.
1: Alright.
0: Okay, your favorite holiday destination.
1: Holiday? Uh, skiing. Ski destination. Hill. Yeah, like uh, uh, ski hill. Let's say Breckenridge, Colorado.
0: Okay. Your favorite soccer club. Uh, Liverpool. Volleyball or soccer? Volleyball. Favorite beer?
1: Uh, so Schneider's Weisse from Munich.
0: Okay, I was Octoberfest. Come on, it's October. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, but Schneider's Weisse. Schneider is uh, they're uh, uh, they are a Munich brewery and they make a really nice. But you're right, Oktoberfest is just over. Uh, Just finished. Okay. uh, Okay. Maybe a week or two ago. So, oh, actually, they cancelled it this year.
0: Yeah, it must be virtual right. October Octoberfest, I guess.
1: <laughs> Not nearly as fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you have to give up one thing, what will it be? Tea or beer?
1: Mm, boy, that's hard. <laughs> Is there anything by, any other choice, like giving what? up a limb or?
0: <laughs> nope, nope. The first thing. The first thing that comes to your mind.
1: Uh, I guess I'm gonna go with beer.
0: Okay, you like tea that much?
1: Yeah, how about uh, kombucha? So kombucha is sort of uh, (laughs) the combination of the both, so. Yeah,
0: good, that's a good one. Okay, your favorite restaurant around town?
1: Uh, Thai Essence.
0: Nice, that's a good pick, yeah. Okay, so that's the end of our round. So ladies and gentlemen, Professor Worley completed, as he said, completed his graduate studies from Northwestern University in 92 and 97 respectively, and then a postdoc from UCSB, UC Santa Barbara, where he worked on developing micro PIV. One of his works from his time at UCSB is the second most cited paper in the history of experimental fluids. So, Professor, I know we touched this topic a little little while ago. Tell us more about your grad life. Did you have any uncertainties during your PhD or grad life, or was it like a... Well laid out, straightforward research plan.
1: Well, there, there uh, let's see. You know, there were there were a couple of uh, let's say difficulties along the way. Um, so I can I can uh, tell a couple of short stories in that area. Um, so one was uh, the first semester in grad school. I ended up getting a, a C in. Um, the equivalent of Math 527. And and I thought, um, you know, I made the wrong choice. I'm not gonna cut it in grad school. And, uh, but then, you know, refocused and um, straightened things out and everything from then on was uh, headed in the right direction. So a little bit of uncertainty right at the start. Um, And then sort of right near the end, there was a let's say a personnel situation, to be delicate, where there was somebody in my lab who I didn't think was finishing on his merits, was getting, uh, let's say was worthy of uh, graduating and uh, with a PhD and uh, ended up with a very disappointing uh, situation, so I would say a little bit disillusioned with the whole uh, PhD process uh, at right at the end uh, of my PhD, so I kind of left Northwestern and you know slammed the door. Didn't go back for grad school or didn't go back to graduate, um, but uh, I've sort of gotten over that and uh, yeah, try to be uh, try to I'm trying to make sure nothing like that happens in my group. So. Uh, you can let I'm, me know. If, yeah,
0: I'm very grateful. Let
1: <laughs> me you know if I succeed. Yeah,
0: I think you are succeeding excellently. Okay, so what was your favorite stress buster as a grad student? Uh
1: squash. Squash. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> so actually, so squash in the winters, and uh, I played a lot of beach volleyball in the summers. Yeah. Uh, Northwestern, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is on the uh, Uh, on the shore of Lake Michigan, very beautiful campus. And uh, there was a beach right on campus. And uh, uh, I would go into work, uh, work until say three in the afternoon. And then I would take three hours off from three until six, maybe seven in the evening, playing (laughs) volleyball out on the beach. And then uh, go back to work, all sandy. And I don't know about you, but... uh, back in those days I had uh, essentially a kitchen cabinet uh, with all my dinner and uh, you know ramen noodles and <laughs> you know different things like that and so I would just eat dinner right at the lab and go home at I don't know 11 or midnight and start it all over the next day
0: okay so you gave me a brilliant segue for my next question which was how different do you think is the current grad life? from your time? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I think it's pretty similar. Um, so, you know, I've been here uh, 21 years and I did two years. I'm just trying to think of how far, behind, how much younger a new an incoming student would be, an incoming grad student would be than I am. I think it would be about 30 years. 20, 50, yeah, something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, maybe a few more. Uh, yeah, 30s about right. Anyhow, um, yeah. So I think in those 30 years, not a lot has changed. You know, maybe the speed of some uh, did analog to digital system, the speed of uh, computers has changed, but I, there hasn't really been a fundamental change like. For instance, you mentioned particle image velocimetry. I think this is the mm-hmm. the, the flow measurement technique that that KZ and I do a lot. And uh, um, I came in at the start of when computers were applied to this this technique. And so anybody doing PIV today, it looks a lot like what I did back in the '90s, um, you know, except bigger, faster, uh, and so on. But not it no changes in
0: principle so okay. good question thanks and so disappointing how, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's okay i mean it's pretty uh, it's pretty visual that um tech has increased tech has changed we have better faster bigger gadgets or toys let's say but the fundamental research fundamental research life is pretty much same so it is rather reassuring not yeah, uh, sad that it's the same boat. We are in the same boat, or were in the same boat.
1: Yeah, let me let me tell you one thing that should, uh, that should that you might find interesting. So yeah, uh, do you remember a company called Mosaic? Yeah, I don't know yeah. if that rings a bell. They had made a web browser called Mozilla,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that was that was the first time in 1992 or 91. I was in uh, the beginning of my PhD studies. Uh, actually, that was my master in the end of my master's years. That was when things like the World Wide Web and you know web browsers. That's when things like that became popular. So, you know, like there are a, a number of things where I was sort of. on the same, you know, just beyond the transition from some earlier generation, and so. You know, if you think about web browsers that you use now, OK, the graphics cards are better, but. Um, it's pretty much the same technology that was around in the
0: 90s, so. OK, so when you started your masters or your PhD, did you know what project or what you wanted to do or how did you pick up your thesis project or yeah. the line of research?
1: So in. Um, uh, High school, I was interested in um, uh, like sailing uh, boats and uh, airplanes and things that interact with the, uh, you know, our, our atmosphere. And um, so that was my, that, so I I definitely had the blinders on. I was focused on fluid mechanics. And then I got to, you know, you, you do your bat. You do your bachelor's, and you're a generalist, uh, you know. And you get done with that, and maybe you've done a few projects or something where you specialized and done something that you actually chose to do. But uh, yeah, so went to grad school. Interested in fluid mechanics, and um, uh, I chose Northwestern. Um, and I had I had three finalists on my list for grad schools. Uh, Northwestern, the University of Illinois, and uh, Notre Dame. And I'd sort of focused on those because they're all around Chicago. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she was at University of Chicago. And in the end, I chose uh, Northwestern, which if you guys, the relative rankings of those schools hasn't changed in the intervening 30 years, you know. Maybe they've gone up or down a (laughs) position or something, but so Northwestern is still like 10 positions behind Illinois and it was back in those days. And so by the numbers, I think I made the wrong choice, but it was, you know, it was 30 minutes across town from from my wife's uh, school. So chose Northwestern, there was maybe not a great choice because there was one professor doing fluid mechanics Experimental fluid mechanics at the time. And he had one project that needed a student. So uh, the way they do things at Northwestern then and still do them now is uh, incoming grads in mechanical engineering, incoming grad students are sort of put in a pool. And you do, they have quarters there. So you do two quarters um, of uh, instruction, you know, just of classes um, on a fellowship before you have to choose an advisor. So then, you know, there were like four or five people who were interested in the one project and this professor happened to choose me. Uh, So I was really glad uh, of that. Uh, But if he hadn't, I don't know, I might be, well, probably would have finished with a master's if if I hadn't got that project, so.
0: Well, that's good. So you spoke about environmental engineering more things that interact with the atmosphere, environment, things around us. So that is, that brings me to something that we cannot miss while talking about Steve Mm -hmm. Hurley. Uh It's year 2020, it's a decade on from Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So uh, for everyone who's listening, Professor Hurley was instrumental in answering key questions about the amount of oil flowing into the Gulf of Mexico. He was also awarded the U.S. Geological Survey Director's Award in 2010 for his contributions. And so, Professor, what do you? How do you feel about that? Tell us a little about the incident.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that is, um, I would say, an anomalous event in my uh, in my assessment of my career and others. Uh, yeah, it was so. Let's see, 2010. So yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's the 10 year anniversary of that yeah. disaster. Um, so and this is one of the, this is one of the examples that makes the case of the a professor having basically a faculty position being a license to do the kind of research that you want to do. Um, so I had um, I had been let's see in 2006 and seven. Um, I had co-written a book on PID with uh, three German co-authors. So they worked for the German Aerospace Agency, so something like NASA in Germany. And the uh, and the, the book was called Particle Image Velocimetry. Then uh, what happened was in this oil spill, uh, the... Oil companies use remote control submarines in order to to do work when they're at a depth that's lower than humans can tolerate in the ocean, um, which, and, and that, you know, the depth that we can tolerate, uh, you know, let's say in a diving suit or something is really limited. I don't know what it is, but it's like a hundred meters or something. Uh, below that, you have some problems. Maybe it's more than that, anyhow, I don't know. But it's less, the distance that people can descend to is, is, is pretty, pretty limited. And the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill was, there was a broken pipe at the bottom of the ocean under about one mile of water. And, okay, so they use remote control submarines uh, to attempt to, you know, to do all sorts of operations under the water. Those have cameras on them, right? In fact, probably stereoscopic cameras. Uh, and so, these there was sort of a fleet of submarines, like six or eight submarines, doing this or that around this oil spill. And the oil company, this is British Petroleum BP, they posted a video of one of these submarines looking at the oil spill. And you know, you can see oil shooting out of a pipe. And then the company was continually denying how much oil was coming out. And I was looking at these videos saying, okay, the pipe was 20 centimeters in diameter, so be something like that. And I was thinking, well, you know, just looking at it, you knew that it had to be a really sizable spill, that the oil company was uh, uh, was not telling the truth. So I thought I can apply my uh, uh, PIB, I can apply my PIB analysis to that project, to that, that flow. And about at that time, uh, a news reporter for NPR, National Public Radio, uh, looked at those videos and thought somebody must be able to analyze those. So he called up a friend of mine in Boston at uh, not Boston, uh, Providence uh, at Brown, Brown University. And that guy said, uh, that was Kenny Breuer uh, at Brown University. And Kenny said, Uh, definitely those videos could be analyzed. flow rate could be extracted. He does that sort of stuff, but he was busy. This was their final exam time. So he said, he said, he sent this reporter uh, to to Google to look up article image on symmetry. I wrote the book, uh, co-wrote the book. Three of the authors, other three authors were in Germany. And, you know, I think this reporter didn't wanna call Germany if he didn't have to, so he called me. And, uh, and this happened the day after I submitted my grades uh, in twenty in April, or May of twenty ten, uh, and so I had some time. I uh, looked at. The, I spent an afternoon uh, analyzing this flow, and um, the the answer was the oil company was lying. The spill was uh, something like twelve times as large as they were uh, admitting, and I, and I did that in like three hours. Uh, I came up with that answer.
0: So it, it, it there happened. you go, people. That's yep. your that's your professor who loves tea, loves beer, and puts away bad people in his spare time.
1: Real world engineering.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So how was it to testify in front of Congress? Were you nervous? Uh,
1: I think that whole there was it was about a week of of anxiety. Um, Right, so solving the problem of of calculating how much oil was coming out, that was the fun part. And literally, uh, let's say two hours after I made that calculation, there was a a piece on NPR announcing the results. And then uh, a few hours later, uh, uh, Anderson Cooper's uh, producer called and said, we want to get you on the phone tonight. So I called into Anderson Cooper and the next day was like uh, 20 TV interviews, and uh, and it, and it it continued like that for something like a month. And so, in the middle of that, after the fir- maybe after the first day of uh, of, of news pieces, then um, uh, Congressman Markey's uh, 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 staff called me and said, "We want to have you come for a what do they call it?" Uh, an investigation. We want to have you come testify in an investigation, so.
0: Did uh, did BP ever contact you?
1: I never directly spoke to them. Uh, I was imagining, uh, you know, as I was thinking about this, I, I didn't at all strategize this. You know, like, uh, as soon as I talked to the national public radio, um, then I thought, well, what if Purdue is a supporter, uh, or Purdue is supported by BP? Uh, and, uh, yeah. So uh,
0: yeah, that would have been something.
1: (laughs) So it didn't, everything turned out fine. Uh, But it was a bit, uh, I would say impetuous. It was, you know, like I just, I had, it was, you know, if you think about, um, uh, the, uh, you know, the Eureka moment from, uh, oh, now I can't think of the, the, uh, the Greek guy, um, Anyhow, oh. the, Archimedes. What's that? Archimedes, Eureka! Yeah, that's it, Archimedes. Um, yeah, it was like an Archimedes moment where you know I had the answer and uh, thought I should tell somebody about it. So, Did you enjoy
0: the plethora of screen time you got? Oh, you got a lot of TV time.
1: It was interesting. I, I would say interesting. Um, you know, it was a little bit tedious. Like for those of you who know me. Uh, this is about how I usually look a little bit scruffy and so the whole summer of 2010 I was I was shaving and wearing a button-up shirt every morning when I would go into work and uh you know I'm, I'm sort of this is more my my speed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was interesting. Let's
0: I would think I can that. imagine yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So uh we we're coming towards the end of our podcast or to uh, interview so are there anyone in the audience who wants to ask any questions from Professor Wenick Hi hi professor yeah. <laughs> now, hi. I, I'm just curious like what is the biggest difficulty you met during your career or your PhD life
1: well uh, maybe uh, maybe I would say uh, family work balance. Especially in the early years, when when my kids were young, so, um, and this is especially hard for uh, for women in academics, but my my wife and I were on the same calendar. She's uh, she's actually a, a professor of English, who's uh, she's now associate dean of the honors college at Purdue. Um, so we were sort of on the same uh, calendar. Hired at into Purdue at the same year in. Tenure-track jobs. So she submitted her package uh, for promotion to associate professor, uh, and immediately we uh, decided to have a baby. Uh, in fact, we decided the baby came a few months after submitting this this, this tenure and promotion package. Um, and so, as a as an assistant professor, uh, especially in engineering you're usually, okay, you're chasing money. And when you get money, then you're chasing grad students, right, you gotta get good grad students. Once you get good grad students, then you gotta get the research done. And okay, and the end of all of that, then you're going to, you know, research conferences. And so I was probably going to uh, one a month, I would guess, something like that. And so once a month I was on uh, an airplane, you know, out of, the office three four five days something like that and uh, and then the kids came along so fortunately I was promoted at that time I was an associate professor but then I dialed it way back to a couple of conferences a year and that was it was really challenging so especially you know because my wife is an academic as well um, you know if you have a if you have a stay at home wife uh, then, you know, a lot of the childcare duties can, can go to that person. But um, with both of us being academics, it just wasn't possible. You know, we had to split it. And there are lots of uh, funny pictures of my kids growing up where I have a PhD thesis that I have to uh, review, and uh, there's a baby sleeping on me, or I'm sitting on an exercise ball, bouncing the baby while I read something. <laughs> Did the same thing for my wife. So. That was probably the hardest thing is work-life balance. It's gotten easier uh, now that the kids are, my, kid, my daughters are uh, 14 and 17 now, so it's gotten quite a bit
0: easier I see, but I see those are kind of like complaints about having two people working in exam. What is the benefit?
1: Yeah, so the, the benefit is uh, you have, if, if you're a professor, You know, you have a ton of work, but you can do it whenever you want. And so lots of times for me, this was five in the morning uh, when I had uh, young kids. I don't know why, but they seem to like to wake up early. Uh, (laughs) And so they knew
0: both of their parents are professors.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, there was definitely uh, a lot of. A lot of work done at five in the morning. Like one of the one of the parents would have to get up and take care of the kids, and you know, then maybe I would have a research paper out and while I was, uh, you know, getting breakfast ready or something. So uh, yeah, you know, you you have a lot of work, but you have the total the flexibility to do it whenever you need to. So that's the good part. Maybe the bad part is you never feel like you're off, right? Uh, if you are, uh, I don't know, uh, washing cars for a living or something, you know, some uh, some job where you leave the job and you go home, you know, you know when you're not working. And as a professor, just you know, you're you're never really done with your job.
0: The boundaries just merge.
1: Yeah, it's blurred. Yeah, especially now with this all this pandemic, you know. This is my office. This is also uh, you know, this is also my laundry room, so
0: OK, so this seems to be a question from the. Audience. Let me see. Oh, <laughs> let me ask this question. This is fun. Ah. The question <laughs> is what one quality do you look for in a student before taking them in your group?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Thank I, you
0: for this question, audience.
1: I should choose a quality that KZ exhibits, right? Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> uh, really?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, like I think the most important thing is curiosity. I know, wanting to know why things work the way they do. Um, so I, I don't necessarily look for um, skills in a certain area, although, you know, sometimes I'll have a project in which you know, if I could find somebody who had um, some microscopy skills, maybe it would make the training of that student easier. Um, but generally, you know, all students pick up their, uh, their training on the job. Uh, and so
0: I generally look
1: for somebody who is uh, who's curious, you know, like, and, and typically I would like to recruit students uh, from classes that I teach. Right. So the students who come to my office and uh, a lot and ask me questions like, you know, why does this work? You know, how do I do this problem uh, and, and have long discussions uh, about those sorts of things? Those are the students that I, I like to hire.
0: So, yeah, curiosity is curiosity is a big thing, in, especially yeah. in our research field. So we are coming close to uh, close to the end of our interview, Professor. Would you like to leave our listeners with some thoughts to inspire them to lead a life of curiosity and passion? Uh,
1: You know, I would say focus on answering the why questions and don't, you know, everything else will fall in place. So there are lots of maybe short-term things that you have to do, but I think always keep focused on the, the why questions. Like, why do you, you know, why does something do this? You can answer the why questions, then you, uh, you know, uh, and you're headed the right direction, at least as a professor anyway.
0: So yeah, brilliant words. Uh, thanks a lot for your time, Professor Woolley. Thanks, thanks for your inspiring words.
1: Happy to talk to you guys. Uh, and I'll, I'll hopefully next year, we'll all be
0: passing each other in the hallways again.